Good morning. That was good. You guys are awake. No, not like not like that first hour. No, that was they were awake too. It was. It's good to be back in town. You know, when I got off the uh, you know, past week, you might not even know I was gone. This past week, I was uh, visiting my family back in in Wisconsin, and it was interesting. When I got off the plane, I, I felt even though there's my family's there uh, back in Wisconsin, I got off the plane here in Erie, and I felt like oh, home. So this was this was fun. It's a fun thought. Well, my, my wife will be joining us, actually. Uh, she won't be here in church. She's coming, flying in next Sunday afternoon. She'll be here for a week uh, house shopping. So you can pray for us with that and with the house that's selling. Yeah, that's not, hasn't sold yet. Believe it or not, I've had so many people asking me about those things. I am on Twitter now. You for this? Now, some of y'all might be wondering, what? Is that legal? You know, no, Twitter is fine. It's, it's like a virtual bulletin board. And so I am on there and I post stuff. And so uh, from your Internet, if you, you uh, search for, here's my username, Harry Haven, capital H-A-R-R-I-H-A-V-E-N, uh, then you can I'll post up what's going on with the house and my family and all those kind of things. I might tell you what happened in the board meeting. So who knows? You know, hey, that's according to how I'm feeling. Um, feel free to, to click in on with that. My, my wife's health is doing better. And so that's a good thing. She had some stomach thing. And it looks like it's, we're moving in the right direction there. Uh, but that's caused me to be thinking, you know, you don't have to be a medical doctor to realize that a healthy body is better than a sickly body. Right now, you don't always get the chance to choose. But if you get the chance to choose, choose health. Right. You, you remember when you think back of a time that you had the flu and you got a hundred plus certain three, four degree fever and you're you're nauseous and who knows what else is going on. And you feel like you've been hit by a truck. Let me ask you, at that point in history, are you the most pleasant person to be around? Yeah, no, probably not. At that point in history, are, are you thinking most clearly? Are you wondering how you might serve others? Are you thinking about, I wonder what God has for me in his word today? You're probably not thinking any of those things. You are just barely getting by, right? Uh, a healthy body, and this makes sense because this was God's perfect plan. This is how he created us initially. A healthy body has much more strength than a sickly body. It can go the long haul. It can endure more. It can persevere through much more. A healthy body has fewer limitations and fewer distractions. Uh, Generally speaking, a healthy body lends itself to more positive thinking, positive disposition. Generally speaking, of course, a healthy body lends itself to more creativity and clearer thoughts. And and if you get the chance to choose, you want to choose health. Now, Now, the reason why our bodies are as healthy as they are is because you have something within you called an immune system. Your bodies are under constant attack. I'm told that every time we breathe, we are breathing in myriads of of germs. And every time we eat something, we are are eating myriads of germs. No matter how hard we try to not, we do. But we hardly ever notice it because we've got this system in our body that is looking for alien invaders. And as soon as it recognizes that something has come into the body that ought not to be there, it goes into kamikaze mode and goes after it, wipes it out because it knows that if it doesn't, it can destroy the health of your body. Now, it's kind of a gross illustration, but if you remember seeing a, uh, if you've, maybe you've never seen this, hopefully you have not, but if you have, come across a, an animal that's been dead for like two weeks. You know, yeah, we all can, all God's people said, right? There's worms and bacteria and the thing is decomposing. And, and what it is, is lots of bacteria and all these things. In time, they will, they will dismantle this body till it's just a skeleton. 
right? And the reason why it does that is because when the animal dies, its immune system stops. This is what would happen to us if we didn't have our immune system. Now, your immune system can go haywire, right? In one of two ways, it can, a, it can not recognize things that it should recognize as wrong and attack. Uh, it, it can let things go. And so you can have uh, things inside you and cells inside you that shouldn't be there that are reproducing, that are making your body sick. And your immune system is happy as a lark. It has no clue that that's what's going on. Or your immune system can go the other way. It can end up attacking good cells. It, type 1 diabetes, I'm told, often is the result of your body attacking your pancreas. So lupus is involved with this, allergies, of course, where your body just goes after itself. It doesn't need any help to break down from germs. It will destroy itself if your immune system goes down. Now, where, where we're going with this, you might be wondering where we're going with this, is spiritually you are under attack. And you wonder, in a group this size, how many of us might be sitting there with some sort of spiritual cancer, some sort of spiritual germ and bacteria, and it's eaten away at your spiritual life. But you know what? The spiritual immune system is shut down. It's not working. And you don't even recognize it. But spiritually, you're getting farther and farther and farther from God. Just a little bit at a time. Don't even recognize it. Uh, the, the, the church is under attack, F-A-C, but the church as a whole. Uh, and this makes lots of sense, doesn't it? I mean, if, if, this is, if this is true, then you've got to know that hell recognizes that there's not too much more powerful in this world than, than a, a body that is directly committed to, to Christ, that is filled with the Holy Spirit, that's seeking him incredible power. And so hell's job is to create unhealth. And so it's attacking. And one of the, the things that, that I believe hell is using to attack the church today is what is referred to as the emergent church. Have you heard this? You heard of the emergent church? Well, you know, it's a, a uh, difficult thing sometimes to get your hands around. But it's pretty important that we understand what the emergent church is. Uh, you know, because if you, if you don't understand what it is, then one of two things will happen, just like our immune system. Either A, I'm not sure what the emergent church is, but I'm sure that that person over there is part of it. You know, it's like that spiritual McCarthyism. You know, I don't know. I'm not. But and you're just going on a witch hunt and we start blasting away at all kinds of things. And the danger is this. What if this person or this organization or whoever else is actually on our team? What if they really are for the kingdom? But out of our ignorance, and we're sincere, mind you, but out of our ignorance, we're blowing away and blasting them away. Well, we might be sincere, but it's still going to hinder the work of Christ. Another side of it is a spiritual, not a spiritual McCarthyism, but a spiritual blindness. And this happens quite often, it's sad, when folk head to the secular university. And they start hearing these emergent church type doctrines. And they sound good. And the people who are seeing them are, are cool. They're nice people. And maybe this is true. And they take the pill, but it's candy coated, so it tastes great going down. But it's rat poisoning. It will destroy spiritually. Now, you need to know when we talk about the emergent church, the emergent church isn't meeting over, you know, at Bethel Baptist or St. Luke's Episcopal or someplace. And there are churches that have embraced this. But the emergent church is really a uh, it's a movement. It's 
more than anything else, it ends up being a philosophical system that it's wedged into um, theology. And the emergent church challenges everything, every doctrine you can imagine. Hell, heaven, lifestyles, the atonement, the word of God, uh, evangelism. Uh, you n- name something and they've put a question mark on it or they've denied it. And it's very uh, insidious because it comes through media and it comes through reading. It comes through all kinds of different aspects. And so we might have been infected. I don't doubt that many of us have been infected with some of this uh, to a degree or, or other. And we're not even aware of it. Now, I'm going to show you a quote by, by Rob Bell because this is real important. Maybe I'll show you a quote by Rob Bell. Here we go. By this, I do not mean cosmetic superficial changes like better lights and music, sharper graphics and new methods like easy to follow steps. I mean, theology, the beliefs about God, Jesus, the Bible, salvation, the future. We must keep reforming the way the Christian faith is defined, lived and explained. Bell is one of the gurus in the emergent church. And you see what he's saying here? He's saying the emergent church is not about, you know, playing rock music and turning down the lights and serving coffee. It's, it's not, that's not it. The emergent church is understanding that the way the church started way back when, it's supposed to keep evolving. And we are to keep determining what is it for us today. Yes, that's what it was back then, but what is it supposed to be for us today? And yes, that's what they understood about God back then, but what are we supposed to understand about him today? It challenges everything. It's much more than just an evangelistic technique, the emergent church. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to take some time between series to help us understand what this is and understand specifically what our response is supposed to be with this. Now, if... uh, can drive this down just a little bit deeper for, for a second because it's so important uh, if you play team competitive sports how important is it that you understand who the opponent is you pretty it's pretty important don't you think are you gonna be passing the ball to the wrong people you're gonna be tackling the wrong guy you know there's just no way you're gonna win if you win it's only because the other team was more stupid there's just no way you're gonna win think of a battle In a battle, isn't it important to know who the enemy is? Who am I supposed to shoot at here? You start shooting at anybody, you're not going to win that way. You have to understand who the enemy is. And so we need to understand who and what the emergent church is about. And again, how it's impacted us. Now, the the emergent church has been... um, Really, it's an offshoot of postmodern philosophy, postmodern culture. And so we got to dig into this just a little bit to understand the emergent church. But I think as we do, think you'll get an aha. Okay, I can see where this is going. I can understand this. Uh, pre-modern world, prior to 1500, what the pre-modern world was is these folk rejected mythology. They realized it wasn't just a bunch of gods up in the heavens doing whatever they wanted to do. They held on to their faith in God and they held on to their reason, their skill. And they were able to go through life exploring and discovering and examining things using their intelligence, not just throwing everything to the wind, but using their intelligence, but never for a moment thinking that God was not part of the process. In the pre-modern world, God was the center. Then in the modern world, and the modern world starts, according to who you read, maybe 1500 with the Reformation, maybe 1798 with the storming of the Bastille. It starts somewhere in there and it goes to the end, basically, of World War II, 1950. And the modern mind says this, the modern mind elevates their reasoning 
And they kind of throw the faith off into a corner. They really bring the secular sacred divide going on. And they say, yeah, before we were superstitious. Yeah, we kind of needed God because we didn't understand how the universe worked. But now that we understand how things work, now that we have our signs, see, we understand we don't need those superstitions anymore. And yeah, church, you go off into a corner somewhere and if people really need a crutch, they can go to you and find whatever psychological needs met that they need. But we understand that it's our understanding that is reality. And given ourselves enough time and our scientific methods, we can get to the very bottom of everything. We can bring utopia into this world. And so the modern mind, that's what it's sought out to do, to understand the underlying truth of life and bring utopia. End of modern world, man was the center. About 1950, right after World War II, and again, the dates are, are sketchy a little bit, man stopped and looked and they said, okay, let me see what our modern rational thinking has done. Let me see what our, our thinking has brought into when we've rejected faith and we've, we've, we've depended on our own skills. Let's see the utopia that we have. Okay, we've had two world wars. We've got widespread injustice and tyranny in the world. We've got widespread poverty. We've got AIDS. We've invented the bomb. Oh, yeah, that's real good for us. We can now annihilate ourselves pretty easy. Uh, and they began to look at this, and it seems like utopia has never been further away. And so they end up saying, you, you know what? Um, the, the, the postmodern thought rejects God is the answer, but they also reject reason as the answer. And what they come down to is they, they say this. They say, you know, there are uh, a couple different premises here. But, but one is that there is no truth. Capital T. There is no truth. There is no underlying truth that's true for all people. And if there is, we just can't understand it. And this is how this works. Let me read you a quote. And I think you get on your screen from Nietzsche. It's kind of deep, but try to follow with this because it'll get you to the where we need to go. He says the real truth about objective truth is that the latter is just a fiction. Every candidate for truth must first be expressed in language and language is notoriously unable to get us to reality. Words like a hall of mirrors reflect only each other and in the end point back to the condition of the users without having established anything about the way things really are. Truth is the name we give to that which agrees with our own instinctive preferences. It is what we call our interpretations of the world, especially when we want to foist it upon others. Now, what, what Nietzsche is saying here is he's saying, uh, you may be a 70-year-old, uh, white, uh, upper middle class, educated Christian woman who grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. You've lived here your whole life. But the way you see life is a little bit different than the way the 20 year old living in his tribe in the hills of the Himalayas, raised in Hinduism and in incredible poverty. The way you see life and the way he sees life are a little bit different. And it's not that you're right and he's wrong. The only difference is the fact of how you were raised and how he was raised. You are the victim of what your church said, of what your government said, of what your family said. That's what you believe, and that's what he believes. It's almost like we're all computers, and we've been programmed. And there may be a reality outside of the computer. A computer's a great thing, but it can only do what it's been programmed to do. 
And it's saying that you and I have been programmed. And so we can read life through our program. But outside, there might be a reality, but there's no way we can ever know it. This is the understanding. Postmodern folk would, would look at the headlines and they would see the political leaders. And it's hard to look at the headlines today and not see a political leader who has fallen. They lie and they cheat and they steal and they're embroiled in some scandal. And they use their power to hurt the people they're supposed to be protecting. Uh, this person looks at the, the headlines and they see uh, business leaders from some of the world's most mega corporations that control the, the financial world of nations. And they see that they lie and they cheat and they steal and they're embroiled in scandal and, they, and they, they are abusing their power, not caring about the thousands and thousands of people that are impacted by their decisions. And they look at the newspaper and they see religious leaders. The priestly pedophiles and the, the uh, Ken Haggard type folk, Ted Haggard, the, the, the uh, hypocrisy and they lie and they cheat and they steal and they use their power. They abuse it for themselves and they say, no one can be trusted. No one has the truth. There is no truth. There is no major uh, underlying benefit for all peoples. They, they reject what they refer to as the meta narrative. And if you just look at the word for a second, it's the big story. And what they mean by that is there's no one big story that's good for everybody. They reject, therefore, Christianity and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and Marxism and, and Confucianism and atheism. Any ism you can think of, they reject it as something that everybody needs. No, that's not. There's no such thing. On the other hand, they accept all of those isms because that might be good for this specific group or this specific culture or, this, or you personally. That's fine. But one all-encompassing truth that's for everybody in the whole world, oh, police. That's not true. It's not, it's not what's, what's happening. There's, there's redefinition that goes on with this. You know, there's been some words that have been redefined. And this is especially... A true, uh, you need to, to think if you have been retired out of the marketplace for some time um, and maybe you're not majorly into the media, this may be might stretch your thinking for a little bit. But they've redefined things like truth, where truth used to be, uh, you know, an absolute universal. It was true for everybody. Right. The absolute universal, no matter what. Now, truth has been defined as pragmatic. What works for you? You know, if it makes you happy. If it helps you cope, if it helps you get through life, well, that's your truth. But that's not my truth. That doesn't work for me. Now, what helps me cope and get through life is my truth. And that may not be your truth. They've defined truth as pragmatics. So when you go out in the world, and you talk about truth. This is often the definition people are working with nowadays. They've redefined tolerance. Remember, tolerance used to be I disagree with what you're saying, but I agree with your right to be able to say it. But today. Tolerance has been redefined as all views are equally valid. There is no view that is more right than another. There is no view that is more wrong than another. And how dare you say it? And if you go on the, the campus today and you were to say that kind of thing, I'm right and you're wrong. Oh, my goodness. You are the, the biggest close minded, bigot, arrogant uh, individual that ever is. Who, how can you possibly say that you're right and another person is wrong? You know, a while back, I contacted uh, Scott Smith. Scott's the uh, uh, professor of philosophy at Biola on the West Coast, Biola, Biola Seminary. And we we're talking about this postmodern thing. And I said, 
It's got a, a, a small town. I mean, it's not as big for like Boston and Chicago and, you know, New York and Los Angeles. It's a small town. Is this really an issue? And, and he said, well, let me ask you. And it's your small town. Do you have children? I said, well, yeah, we've got a few. And he said, well, do they go to school, public school? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, you need to know that the public school teachers were most of them trained at secular universities and postmodern thought runs the secular universities today. And they cannot get out of there without being indoctrinated by it incredibly so. If they're, if they're listening to media, if they're watching media, they're being impacted greatly. Let me give you an example. Big show for the, the 80s, the most popular show is the Cosby Show. Remember the Cosby Show, right? At the Cosby Show, you had a family, and they, they, they responded as a family. There was a resolution. We followed the kids as they grew up, all of that. Big show for the 90s, Seinfeld, right? Now, Seinfeld, no family. No one ever really grows up. Uh, there's no resolution quite often, like you'd see in the Cosby Show. Seinfeld, they, uh, when they talk about authority figures, police, bosses, they usually present them in a demeaning uh, manner. In the Cosby Show, when they brought in the law, and they, brought in the, they, were, they were respected, but not so with the Seinfeld Show. Seinfeld Show, they'll come right out and tell you, we are, this is a show about nothing. It's about nothing. And that's true. If you were to watch the show, when it's all said and done, it made you laugh. But when it's all said and done, there was no plot you really followed. The issue of the integrity issue was you do what you, over here. Remember the Cosby's, the mom and dad are teaching their kids lessons about life and integrity here. Integrity would get away with whatever you can get away with. And if you get caught, make a joke about it and go on. Now, these you've got to we've got to know that that. That entertainers and producers and songwriters and book writers and these guys are not out only about money. They have got a message that they're trying to, to, to sell. Their values come out in what they're producing. And as we entertain and as, as entertain these things, as we're enmeshed with them, they can impact. They will have a, have a huge impact on us. Now, this whole idea of, of postmodern thought has worked its way, obviously, into the church, into religion. Um, Haley Berry says this. Not that she's. Uh, uh, anyway, Haley Berry says, I believe in God. I just don't know if that God is Jehovah, Buddha or Allah. Madonna says, I go to synagogue. I study Hinduism. All paths lead to God. Meanwhile, she had her kids baptized Anglican, too, just in case, you know, just to make sure she covered all of our bases, I guess. Meg Ryan, you got, I mean, I love Meg Ryan. Uh, she says, Eastern thought, Western mysticism. I really dig the whole Hindu pantheon, and I just pull from all kinds of different things. Oprah says, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there is only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. The idea today is like a big spiritual smorgasbord. And in this culture, you are cool if you go up to the smorgasbord and you take a little of this and you take a little of that and you take a little bit about the other thing and you put it on your plate. And you can't say that your plate is better than anyone else's because it's your taste. It's who you are. And you're really good if you go back once in a while and you put different stuff on and you take things off and you change it up because there is no real truth, right? And what satisfied me and what was my truth yesterday may not be my truth today or tomorrow. And so it's constantly changing. And that is made its way into the church. And how did that happen? Well, I was a youth pastor in the 80s. 
And one of the questions that was big for the youth pastors in the 80s was, you know, we looked at Bill Hybels and Willow Creek and all of his new methodology to reach the baby boomers, and it seemed to be working. And so a question was, how do you reach the next generation, Generation X? Who's the next Bill Hybels? So we're trying to figure out, okay, how do you do that? Well, Leadership Network sponsored these conferences all over. Um, I was at a couple of, uh, to try to figure that out. Well, in the 90s, they brought in a, a, a gentleman because they liked what he was doing, Mark Driscoll. And Mark was uh, starting a church in Seattle, Mars Hill, and he was doing some wild, innovative things with some of the, the folk from Silicon Valley and, and uh, Microsoft, trying to get them in. And they liked that, so they said, okay, let's, this is maybe the guy. And so they, they brought him in to do some conferences for him. This church was only 80. He needed some extra bucks, so sure, I'll do some conferences. Uh, then they went on. They hired a guy named Doug Paget. Doug is actually... Leith Anderson's former youth pastor. If you don't know who Leith Anderson is, he is the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. He's kind of like the Protestant Pope. His church is, is a solid church. It's a great church. He's got great material out. He's a neat guy. And Doug used to be his, his youth pastor. And, and what they did as they started, started working this through is they said, okay, we've got the Bible over here. And then we got a lot of ways we do church. Now, the problem is these, some of these ways that we do church are very close to the Bible because really we study the Bible at church. And so the problem is a lot of folk have taken these ways that we do church and they've, they've just enmeshed them. They, they think they're the Bible, but they're not really the Bible. And so they began to separate them out. And they said, I mean, everything was up for grabs that was not in the word of God. Um, how we do church, the when, how we dress, the music, the technology, the, the architecture, all of the hows, the things that are not in Scripture. And remember, at this point, holding to God's word true, but saying the way we do church, we're not going to let that be an obstacle to people understanding the word of God. So they started doing these conferences. But then Doug Padgett brought some of his friends along. Uh, Tony Jones, Brian McLaren. And what they did is they all, they also started questioning the word of God. Very postmodern. All, all the gurus of, of the emergent church that I've been able to come across, very, very well versed in postmodern philosophy. And they said, well, hang on. I know that that was true for them back then, but I'm not so sure it's true for us today. And I know that that's what it says about homosexuality. But can we really understand exactly what he was trying to mean by that today? Well, I don't think we can. And we better not err on judging somebody. And, and I know what, what it says about Christ literally dying, and, but, but did he really? And, you know, they began to challenge everything. Well, at that point, Mark Driscoll says, whoa, 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 hang on. We can't challenge the word of God. And these other folks said, we don't have any choice but to do that. And so there was a rift. There was a split. Mark Driscoll, if you were to go to Mars Hill today, Mars Hill Church in Seattle, um, multiple thousand, well, raucous music, uh, rock music, uh, wild lights. Um, he would get to preach in jeans and a T-shirt and preach for like 45 minutes. Some of the deepest theology you can imagine. He's very solid. He'll share the uh, pulpit often with John Piper. His theology book, I believe, is one of the best theology books out there. Very solid. He is held strongly to the word of God. He, he is, is well-versed in Greek and Hebrew. But, but all of the, the methodologies in church, he's willing to let those, let, let those go. Um, the other side, they hold to both. So this is why we've got to be careful. Because there are folk out there who, who um, 
let the methodologies go, but hold to God's word strong. Those are on our team. We don't want to judge them. There's also folk out there who let the methodologies go, who let God's word go. And that's when we've got to stop and say, ah, what are they doing? What's going on? Um, Brian McLaren. Got his picture for you. And, and Brian McLaren, and the reason I got his picture up here is he's really the father of this whole movement. Now, they won't call him that. He doesn't call himself that. But really, with his book, A New Kind of Christian, it really, really is. Now, the reason I got his picture up here is just let me just guess, and I don't know the answer, but how old do you think this guy is? I mean, does he look like he's 22? This is not a youth movement. If you were to read his book, it is steeped in postmodern understanding where he begins to challenge all kinds of, of theology. I understand he's a nice guy that if you're a 16 year old broke down along the side of the road, uh, you would want Brian McLaren to stop because he would help her. He'd be kind. He'd be nice. But his theology is uh, toxic. Uh, it's, it's a it's a different sort of thing. Well, what is supposed to be our response to all this according to the word of God? Well, two things. First is we are to contend. If you've got your Bibles, just look Jude chapter, Jude, it's one chapter in Jude, right? Jude verse 3. It says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Contend, you know, that is a very strong, intense word, and it means to fight. It means to fight to the death. All those barred, you know, it's, 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 or no, it's, barred. It's, it's, it's pull all stops. It's give it everything you got. Now, this is, think for just a second. This is important. What is Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commanding you and I to do here? To fight. To contend. Now, if your personality is like mine, I don't want to fight. I don't like confrontation. I'm I'm not there at all. But Jude recognizes the health of the body requires that we fight that which would poison the body. It's a command to not is to not be obedient to not get this is to not love Jesus. Didn't he say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's a good question that comes up at this point, though. What should I fight about? There's a lot of differences in this world. Um, let me, let me propose this, and I think we could, could tear Jude apart, we would see this. When you come across differences and you're wondering if this is something I should contend about, because we fi- find them all the time with, with family, brothers and sisters, people in the church, people in the worldwide church, differences. What do we contend about? If you go to an emergency room, you know they practice triage, right? And triage is, if you've ever been to an emergency room, you know that it's not a first-come, first-serve issue. Uh, every person that comes in, they evaluate. So that a headache is not going to be on the same level as a gunshot wound to the chest. You know, they they take the most critical things first. And so as we do some theological triage, we decide what are the most critical things. Those are the things I need to contend for. What are the secondary things I can let those go? Well, uh, several Christians, uh, key Christian leaders several years ago, I think in the 60s, got together. And they said, what are the most critical things, the things that we have to agree on if we're going to be able to work together with? And they came up with five things. Okay, these are, they call them the five fundamentals. The first one is the, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ. The fact that Jesus was God, that's something we go to the wall for. 
he wasn't God. He was just man. There's a lot wrong in scripture and his death is of no value to you. So we've got the virgin birth. Second thing we've got is we've got the literal death and resurrection of Jesus in my stead. Substitutionary atonement. Third thing is you go to the wall for is salvation by grace through faith alone. We don't work our way to, to heaven. The fourth thing is Jesus coming back one day. Now, the exact timing of that, that's secondary. We'll worry about that later. But Scripture says he is coming back. That's the fourth thing. The fifth thing is the inerrancy of Scripture. Because if you don't believe the Bible's the word of God, all other arguments are, are useless, right? You have nothing to stand on. And they said, if you hold to those five things, we can work together no matter what the secondary issues are. Those are the five things we contend for. And I believe that, that if we could follow through Jude, we would see that. Now, as you're triaging, you might find uh, that there are some secondary things. I've got a lot of friends who are Presbyterian. If you know anything about Presbyterians, they baptize infants. Now, I've got some real convictions on this issue, but I haven't met any Presbyterians who baptize infants who say that it saves the child. I'll say, no, 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 it doesn't save the child. It's not salvific. It's kind of like your dedication with water. Okay. Well, since it's not salvific, it's a secondary issue. I can hang with my presbytery friends. We can have a good time. As long as we're not talking about baptism, we'll be all right. I don't want to divide the body on that issue. As you're doing your triage, you got differences. Maybe you have differences with people in here. Okay, well, I'm guessing that, that there are a lot of issues. If we went around this morning and we said, give us your theology on tongues. Give us your theology on eternal security. Give us your theology on the second coming. Give us your theology on Calvinism. I'm guessing we're going to get a, a, a wide swath of stuff, different views. None of them salvific. And so we say, you know what? That's nothing I'm going to the wall for. You don't contend about those things. Verse 4 of Jude. He says this. He says, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now, this is significant. You notice the last uh, line. They deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. They're saying Jesus wasn't God. And what happens? Faulty teaching. What happens with that? They, they turn the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Faulty teaching, here's a good principle, always equals faulty living. Faulty teaching always equals faulty living. Trashy living, it comes out of trashy thinking. Uh, this is why the study of doctrine is real important. Now, I know doctrine needs a, a, a new PR person. Because if we were going to have a 30-week study on doctrine, how many of us would go home and run, put that on the calendar? I've got to be there for that one. Uh, most of us would start planning vacation, right? You know, we, we are doctrine is, is way down the bottom of the list, like study of genealogies or something. We're going, you know what? I'm just not there. It's dry. It's boring. Uh, and that's the, the fault, really, of the presenter more than anything else. But, but doctrine have to think right about spiritual things, because how you think about spiritual things will impact your life. How you live, it will impact your life. It cannot not now, let me, let me ask you this. Let me get a little bit personal for a second. What are you reading? What are you watching on Christian television? Who are you spending time with? What kind of doctrine are you listening to? Do you know the theological stance of some of the authors you're reading? It's important questions. The fact that I'm sincere is good, but we know that sincere people can get into all kinds of trouble. 
Now, now, on the other side, indirectly, you might say, well, I don't watch Christian TV. Or I don't read those books, so I'm safe. Well, indirectly, maybe let me ask you again, what are you reading? Cosmopolitan, 17, Sports Illustrated, uh, romance novels. Uh, what are you watching on TV? What are you watching? What videos are you watching? How much video gaming are you doing, guys? Uh, where, where, where are you spending your time? And here's the deal. Again. All these authors and songwriters and gamers, everything, they have a value system that they are putting into their product. And when you read what you read, you watch what you watch, you, you, are, you are gaining a, an understanding, a worldview that may not be Christian. It may be false. And now I'm not shutting any of those things down. Okay, don't, don't hear me wrong here. I, I need my Dan Rather time. I, I understand. Um, but whenever we're being entertained, whenever we're letting anything in, Two, two friends you need to bring with you. Okay, this, this will go a long way. This is a whole different sermon. We need to preach this one sometime. We need to bring discipline. It's the first friend we need to bring with us. Yes, I like this blood and gore video game that I'm playing. And for whatever reason, my mom and dad said I could play some more. But I'm going to practice discipline. And you know what? I'm just not going to play anymore. Yeah, I want to watch another golf thing. And I've already watched 40 hours of it this week. And I can watch it on... But maybe in discipline, I say, you know what? Maybe there's something else I should be doing that, that I can spend my, my time with. I want, want to, to read Wall Street Journal again. Uh, discipline. Maybe, maybe I need to cut back a little bit. Uh, another friend is discernment. Because we are in the world. We do do these things, and that's, that's wonderful. But when you're watching and when you're reading and when you're listening to, you keep asking yourself, what messages are they trying to convey? What's the worldview here? Are there things that is going on here that are against the word of God? Because if I'm, if, if I'm, not, keep, if I'm not alert, then what's going to happen is I'm going to soak this stuff up. I mean, this is huge. This was a key problem in, in the, the church at Corinth. They had faulty teaching regarding the holiness of God. Well, did that lead them to problems? Oh, yeah. Immorality was huge. The Galatian church, problems in teaching regarding the grace of God. Well, did that lead them to problems? Oh, yeah, they had a works salvation thing going. The Colossian church, they had problems in teaching regarding emphasis on other supernatural beings. Well, they began worshiping angels. Faulty thinking is always going to result in faulty living. When Paul's getting ready to leave the Ephesian elders, Acts, Acts 20, he says this to them. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Now, what are they going to do? Are they going to come in with machetes and machine guns? No, no. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. We need to, to contend. We need to be on our guard. We need to be alert to what is out there and what we're taking in. And what might be affecting us spiritually? Because bad teaching always, always equals bad living. A second thing we need to do, and we're just going to touch this and we'll be done, is we need to contextualize. Contextualize. You might say, what in the world does that mean? Let me read the, the, the text for you. First Corinthians nine nineteen. Paul says, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone. To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. 
to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying he's saying I, I, I want you, wants us to know I'm committed to the word of God and I'm holding to it tight. And all these other things, these, this, these, my preferences, my traditions, the things that make me feel comfortable, the way I, I do church, and, and they're, they're good things, and I've got my rights. But I'm letting them go, and I'm putting them underneath the spiritual condition of others. Nobody wants us to know, but I'm not letting go of the Word of God. That's why he says, but I'm still under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Paul was willing to contend for the word of God. If you know, read Paul. He fought for it all the time. But for these things. He didn't fight for these things. He let these things go. And sometimes the sad part is we're willing to fight for these things. We let the word of God go. Now, in this day and age that we're living with this postmodern deal, now this, it's got some bad news, of course, but it's got some good news. And the good news is, is these folk are realizing that the world is broken, I'm broken, and there's nothing in the world mankind can do to fix it. We're Humpty Dumpty, we've hit the ground, and the best the world has to offer can't fix it. But they have not totally rejected God. They're open. It's an incredible era that we're in, an era that we are stewards of. And we just have to make sure that we are going to contend for, in our lives for, for the word of God, for the purity of it. But these other things we have to let go. Now, Hudson Taylor lived this probably better than anybody I know. In 1850, when he went to China as a missionary, there were missionaries in China, but they were all along the, the western coast. And they were in um, bases, patriot bases, um, uh, in the coastal towns. They lived among other Westerners, dressing like Westerners. And they would go out with their interpreter and try to share Christ. And then in the evening they would come back to their base. And, and Hudson Taylor thought, you know, if I lived among the Chinese, I bet I'd be more effective. And so he did. And he said, you know, if I learned their language, I'd be more effective. And so he learned multiple dialects of Chinese. And he began to dress like a Chinaman. And he grew the long ponytail like they used to wear. And his heart was for the inland. I mean, there were just some missionaries along the coast because that's where they would be safe. But look at the inland, all of the Chinese who were on their way to hell. And so Hudson Taylor had a vision and he prayed and he dreamed and he invited. And there were about 800 missionaries that he personally brought in to China who would live among the people, who would dress like the Chinese, who would learn the language, who would share. Uh, in 1905, when Hudson Taylor died, it's estimated that there were um, 18,000 believers in China at that point. 300 mission stations throughout the whole empire, 18 different uh, provinces. 1949, uh, actually just before 49, it was estimated that there were one and a half million Chinese believers. And then the communists came in in 49, and all missionaries were either expelled or murdered. And the church in China went silent. No one knew what was going on. We did know that the, the government was rounding up the best of their leaders and, and murdering them. And so was the church going to survive? Well, in 73, when China opened their borders to Western visitors, reports began to trickle out. And the reports said at first 30 million believers in the church, then 50 million, up to 100 million believers in the church. Because one man 
Hudson Taylor was going to hold the gospel. He was going to contend for the gospel, but he was going to contextualize to the Chinese. He became Chinese that he might win some for Christ. Now, how this works for us, for you, I don't know. Maybe for you, the issue this morning, the, the application is on the contending side. There's just stuff I've been allowing in my life. Maybe I need to approach somebody. There, there is some, some non-truths that I've been dabbling with and I need to work on. Maybe I haven't been filling my mind with doctrine, with the word of God, and I need to get back into that arena. Maybe it's in this contextualization side and you've got your own world that God has placed you, your school or your workplace or wherever that you are right now. And he's expecting you to be the missionary there. Well, how does this work out? But I know this. If this week you were to take 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23, and you were to just spend this week, quiet time, focusing on this, 20 minutes a day, and you've got your spiral notebook. Remember, we talked about that. Depravity factor. Uh, I've got my rights. I don't want to let them go. I want to hold to my things, my comfort level. I want to contend for those. That's my depravity factor. But the, the God factor, the divine factor, is God wants me to let them go. So the practical application, and this is your prayer all week. You should look at this passage. God, how can I apply this in the world in which I live? And if you are sincerely praying that and thinking about God's word, I can't imagine that he won't give you a practical application specific to where you are. Let's pray. Because, God, again, we are very grateful for the people who went out of their comfort zone to share you with us. And Lord, we're very grateful for all the people over the years, folk we don't even know, who contended for your word, who contended for the faith, and it cost them their lives. And God, we would desire for there to be a First Alliance church in Erie way after we're gone. And so, God, for our time here, would you help us to contend as we ought? We know it starts in our individual lives. So would you help us to contend personally, God, even this week? Would your spirit show us? Not legalism, God, but something that we might need to cut out, if anything. Things we might need to ramp up. Someone we might need to talk to. Would you give us the courage to do such? And God, would you show us in the individual worlds that you've placed us? Would you show us? Would you show me, God, how to contextualize our faith by holding on to it with everything we've got, but yet loving people as you do by sending your own son, Jesus, leaving his comfort, leaving his rights to seek and to save that which is lost. I would pray that, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.